This is the Shenandoah Down Under podcast. In the final days of the American Civil War, the CSS Shenandoah set out on an epic year-long secret mission. Join your Australian hosts, Robert Love and Michael O'Brien, as they follow the last Confederate cruiser on its quest to find and sink the Yankee whaling fleet, wherever on the high sea they may find them. And good morning, and this is Shenandoah Down Under, or Confederate Pirates Save the Whales, with Robin Mob, Robert Love and Michael O'Brien. I'm Rob. And I'm Mob, Michael O'Brien. Hi, everyone. And we're, as usual, recording in beautiful Blackburn South. But not as usual, Rob. No. We're not recording on a Tuesday. We're recording on a Wednesday today. Uh, Actually, in fact, Michael, it's Thursday. It's the... (laughs) God, it is too... Oh, what a week. Uh, well, now, the reason um, we're recording on a Thursday is because in, on the, in the first Tuesday of November, uh, Melbourne has what, what we believe is the only horse race that has a public holiday. And that means that um, rather than having a nice, quiet studio at my house in Blackburn South, uh, I had a family running underfoot and um, excited squealing about a horse race. And the horse race went off very well, except that um, two of the horses died. Um, but um, an interesting thing is that in recording on a Tuesday, we are following the, the same sort of process that was followed um, in the <coughs> cult TV show Buffy the Vampire Slayer. In uh, which, we are. In which every single episode um, started on a Tuesday. So the actual episode took yep. place on a Tuesday. The episode would start on a Tuesday. An episode might take place over several oh, days. Oh, okay, yes, right. But it, it would it would start on a Tuesday, and that Tuesday would be ostensibly the day that the show was, was actually aired. Um, and they got a bit meta about this in later series, leading to the great quotation from the sixth series episode, Once More Was Feeling, when Buffy says about her younger sister Dawn, Dawn's in trouble, must be Tuesday. Ah, now, I see. The interesting thing about events in Sunnydale in Buffy the Vampire Slayer on a Tuesday is that lots of things seem to happen on a Tuesday, whereas the problem with The Voyage of the Shenandoah, because it is non-fictional, is that <laughs> a Tuesday is not necessarily the day in which um, things are actually going Something to Something did happening. happen uh, on the equivalent Tuesday, though, um, 150 years ago. Well, they would have run the Melbourne Cup. They would have run the Melbourne Cup. <laughs> That's a very good point, Rob. <laughs> But uh, I'm talking about events that happened on the seas uh, somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean, and we'll, we'll get to that a bit later on. Yeah, sounds like there's an exciting episode coming up, because, oh, I don't want to steal too much of Michael Thunder, but I think we might have our first prize coming up 150 years ago, almost to the day. So I think it's actually a very lucky thing that uh, we are recording this episode on a Thursday instead of our usual Tuesday, although it might leave next week's episode... Um, I don't know. All at sea? All at sea, yes, yes. We we might very much leave leaving this week's episode all at sea. And I was actually thinking of uh, holding back some, some very exciting research that um, that I've done on the um, the Paris Declaration, which which I think is absolutely fascinating. And I, I don't want to steal your thunder, Michael, but um, we did we did talk about the Paris Declaration and um, Yes. What, what is the Paris okay. Declaration? The Just Paris, recap, the right? Paris Declaration. Um, uh, we were talking last week about the fact that the Shenandoah was what they called a privateer, and uh, 
Think about privateer and something that's always given the concept of a privateer, a bad press, is it? It does sound a little bit like pirate. Yeah, private, pirate. Yeah, there's basically one extra letter in pirate to turn it into privateer. And this was uh, done by um, many governments uh, back in the, I think, 16th, 17th and 18th century. A government would issue a letter of mark to a private ship. And uh, this private ship could then go out and take the ships of the enemy for prize money. So the the captain would get a share of the prize money, um, but this ship would not, in fact, be a ship of the the U.S. Navy, or sorry, of the U.S. or British Navy. Um, and the thing about being a privateer was that, interestingly, the Shenandoah was a privateer in that it was a private ship. It was a ship that had been bought from a foreign government. Um, it was not a privateer in the sense that the officers of the Shenandoah were, in fact, officers of the Confederate Navy. Now, in the Paris Declaration, now, um, the Paris Declaration uh, is not to be confused with the Paris Treaty of 1856, although it was an addendum to the Paris Treaty of 1856. Oh, dear, I'm, I'm sorry to steal all your thunder later, but oh, this, this is just fa- fascinating podcasting here. Um, so, n- now, the Paris Treaty of 1856, in fact, ended the Crimean War. And, um, again, the, the sort of thing that when you go through a process like this of, of looking at history and you think the Crimean War, I think, in, in most people's imaginations is, is very much not a modern war. You had the charge of the Light Brigade where, you know... Florence Nightingale. Florence Nightingale, yes. It, 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 it's very much a, a Victorian and 19th century war, um, a war in which despite the fact that the British and the French were allies, the... Um, the, the head English general, uh, Lord Raglan, would often say, attack the French, and somebody would have to tap him on his shoulder. <laughs> Sometimes the French aide-de-camp, would, and he would say, oh, no, no, attack the Russians, uh, because, of course, the, the last war that they had fought uh, back was in the Napoleonic War, and they were not used to being allies. But um, so in, in 1856, uh, Russia, France, England, and a number of other countries that were party to the Crimean but War. But significantly, one country wasn't involved. Well, yes, yes, yes. You're trying to steal the thunder that I'm trying to steal from you. Anyway, um, in 1856, in Paris, uh, they got together uh, Russia. Paris and Great Britain being the main signatories, and uh, they signed a declaration ending the Crimean War. Although I, I do believe um, uh, during the um, the period of the the Crimean War, um, there was a small town in Scotland that was always. Um, uh, Is that uh, Berwick on Tweed? Yes, Berwick on Tweed always used to be mentioned separately in treaties, but I believe they dropped this during the Crimean War. So the declaration of uh, war against Russia included that Berwick on Tweed uh, was uh, at war with Russia, but they decided during the Crimean War that this was this was just too too stupid. So the treaty at the Treaty of Paris apparently did not mention that Berwick on Tweed was now at peace. With Russia, so apparently uh, that leads some people to believe that Berwick on Tweed is still some. No, in fact, Rob, I do remember this. Uh, at some point in the nineteen seventies, right? Berwick conducted its own pe- uh, peace negotiations with Soviet Russia. <laughs> the Soviet uh, ambassador went up to Berwick, shook hands, and 
Uh, and the long war was over. The mayor of Berwick in Tweed said the people of Moscow can now sleep soundly at night, knowing that uh, Berwick, and Tweed, Berwick on Tweed is no longer aiming their weapons at them. Yes. Oh, very, very, very good. Um, so, that, so that, now that was the Treaty of Paris. But at the end of the Treaty of Paris, a, um, somebody suggested, well, why don't we have a declaration of Paris to clean up the, uh, the whole problem of privateers? So um, this was done as an addendum. Everybody was already in town. They probably wanted a few more days to sample the delights of Paris, which wouldn't, I believe, at that time have included the Eiffel Tower because uh, that had not yet been built. But Paris, uh, you know, a world cultural centre, was no doubt a place that they were keen to stay a bit. So uh, what they did is they signed the Declaration of Paris, which was almost entirely to do with privateering. And the main points, and I do have to confess to everybody here, because this is a, a show of great honesty, that I'm getting the main points here from <coughs> uh, Wikipedia. Uh, but the, the main points was that privateering is and remains abolished. The neutral flag covers enemy's goods with the exception of contraband of war. So that meant that you couldn't take your enemy's goods out of a foreign ship unless it was goods that they had previously taken off you. So you're allowed to get your own stuff back, uh, okay. but you weren't allowed to steal the enemy's stuff it was, if it was under a, a neutral, neutral flag. Um, and the other interesting thing was that, that blockades, in order to be legally binding, must be effective. That is to say, maintained by a force sufficient really to prevent access to the coast of the enemy. So you couldn't have a rowboat out in front of somebody's port and have a ship come up and you could go up to them in your rowboat and say, I'm sorry, you can't go in there, ah, uh, we're yes. under blockade. It's real. Yes, it, it, it's got to be real. So, so blockades had to be, had to be real. Now, the thing was, of course, um, in 1856, America was, um, you know, the, the US was sitting quite pretty because um, they, they had not got involved in the Crimean War. They had not done any charging of the Light Brigade. They had not lost the best part of their troops. They were to... saving up suicidal charges for yes, the Civil War. For, for, for five years later. And so the US at that point said, no, um, we are not going to sign. Oh, now, the, the other thing about the Paris Declaration was it was only binding on the signatories. Right. So, so you could you could you could be privateer as much as you want with people who weren't signatories to the declaration, but you had to obey it between the. Oh, so so correct. So correct me if I'm wrong here. So, a British ship could cheerfully privateer to their heart's content. Yes, against to any country that had not signed this declaration. Yes, and so the French are fine. Yes, the uh, presumably the Russians. Yes. Uh, whoever else signed, probably the Turks, whatever. But any country that uh, conspicuously did not sign this declaration is fair game. Is that what you're and saying? And I am saying, and funnily enough, that was in fact the US. So this this decision, and the US withheld, um, did not did not want to, to sign this declaration because they had, of, of all the powers, um, they had the, the smallest navy. And uh, they wanted to reserve the right to use privateers um, against against foreign powers. Now, of course, in, in 1861 and 1862 and 1863, when um, the Confederate raiders were conducting great depredations against Union shipping, um, the US did come along and say, uh, "Could we sign the Paris Declaration now?" And um, the the Great Britain and France took the treaty out, said, hmm, we were there in 1856 in Paris. We had lovely walks along the Seine. We don't see your signature down the bottom. So, you know, in diplomatic language. Tough titties. Tough, absolutely. Um, I don't know if tough titties is even 
you know, diplomatic language. But uh, yes, um, you know, go away. Now, this did not mean that um, the British were totally off the hook in terms of what the... Um, they were off the hook in terms of the Shenandoah being a privateer. They were not off the hook in terms of the Shenandoah being an enemy belligerent. And um, this is, again, one of the, the many ways in which this, this quite simple and, and, and almost trivial incident in the, in the Civil War had, had long-term repercussions because the Declaration of Paris was, in fact... Uh, Apparently, the very first time in which, during peacetime, um, powers agreed as to their conduct during time of war. Basically, before that, you know, pretty much anything went. So, so uh, before that, you'd have a big war, everyone would beat each other up, and then you'd sit down and you'd write a treaty when everyone's sitting around looking. Yes, and, and, that, and that treaty would cover that particular war. Yes, yes. And, and, and which is why you write in clauses including Beric or yeah, Tweed. It, precisely, yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, but, um, so this... So that means that the Declaration of Paris um, was, in fact, the predecessor to the the, the Hague Convention, the the Geneva Convention, mm-hmm. all of the the international legal conventions um, that, that we now have today. Um, basically, this was the first one, and it, it's really no surprise when you think about it that it was a, a maritime convention because, of course, um, shipping and trade and and naval warfare were, were really the where, 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 in many ways, where, where powers uh, met each other, they they would meet each other on the high seas. That's where all the thorny questions had to be had to be worked out. So um, I, I think it's actually quite quite interesting that this was the the very first uh, of those treaties that the US did not sign and that, that came back to uh, again they desperately be, wanted to uh, desperately wanted to they wanted back seas on that uh, seven years later so anyway that's that's my that's that, that's my piece of research for the week now michael i believe because this is thursday not tuesday you have some very interesting things to come up with yes rob uh, i've been looking at whittle's uh, diary, his ship's log that he kept throughout the journey which is called the css shenandoah a memorable cruise. And there are some memorable bits. There's, there's been two, I think, since the last time we spoke. And that is that they've managed to capture two prizes. Two prizes. Yes. They've Their first prize was taken on the 29th of October. Well, now, we, we are going to have to find, uh, to dig out, Midshipman Mason's diary, which, which was, I believe, is, is available probably in the Museum of the Confederacy, because he was very down on, uh, on Whittle, on, on, on Waddell, and thought that he, he wasn't up to much. So we, we're going to have to dig out and see if um, he actually changed his mind when they actually got a prize. So they chased after this, uh, this first ship. It hoisted an English flag. Aha. Uh-huh. Uh, but was it a false flag? Well, that's, that's, that's very interesting, particularly in light of what you've been talking about with the uh, Declaration of Paris. So the next thing you do is you send over an officer in a, uh, in a launch to go over and check the ship's papers. And they concluded that it was, in fact, a Yankee ship. So... Little go into any detail as to how they concluded this. I mean, um, they thought that it looked like it had been made somewhere in the US. It looked like it was Yankee built. Yes, yeah, fair enough. It was it was actually brand new. This ship and was carrying an estimated cargo worth ninety thousand dollars 
which is uh, which is a pretty impressive cargo, which they uh, managed to bring over on board onto their own ship. They discovered that most of the crew were German. Yes. The captain himself was a Yankee. Yep. And uh, there was a steward who was from Madras. And they burned the ship and... Actually, no, they didn't burn it. They sunk this one. They okay. scuttled it. So it uh, it disappeared into the briny deep. The problem... I think they probably got over that fairly quickly. I imagine it's probably a fair bit easier to burn a ship than to, to scuttle it. Yes, they talk here about how it takes some time to go down. And uh, Whittle talks about you can hear the spars cracking and the ropes breaking as the ship goes down. And it must have been a particularly... Uh, interesting and in a way sad sight because this was this ship's second journey. So it was oh. brand spanking new. Oh dear. The, down to Davy Jones Locker. Da- down to Davy Jones Locker. The captain, Captain Staples, who's described as a real, a real down east Yankee, which oh, it seems to be an insult. they were fighting words. Who calculates lines. and guesses. Oh, I'm not even dear. sure what that means either, but he doesn't seem to like him much. In fact, he says, oh, how do I hate the whole race? And still, I can't help from treating them kindly. So they were bored over. Oh, that, 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 so, so, so he'd taken this guy's ship. Why did he actually treated him kindly, given that he'd taken his ship, even though he had papers saying that he wasn't a Yankee? There, there was one particular problem, and that is that the papers on board the ship yes. implied very strongly that it was a British ship. But the papers were not partic- weren't completely in order, so there was some doubt and confusion as to. And this is, by the way, they were working this out after it had hit Davy Jones' locker. Uh, okay, yes. maybe they had sunk a British flag ship after all, which put a bit of a a uh, sour taste in the mouth. I think because the captain of the ship um, was such a uh, down east Yankee, they might have just decided. Uh... What's a few bits of paper? Sinker, sinker. Yes, yes. So uh, the first the first capture they had wasn't quite the uh, rousing success they thought it would be because they weren't exactly sure whether all the paperwork was in order. I, I, again, I get the impression that later in the voyage they, they kind of adapted more of the, you know... Bit more think, think all, God will know his own. <laughs> yes, so, yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They then sailed on for some time and... Uh, through fairly heavy weather. Yes. Um, but now, now this, this is probably another, another period where the Shenandoah proved itself to be a wet ship. Quite a wet ship. Of course, not having enough crew on board didn't help as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, they then notice another sail a couple of days later when they're in the middle of a heavy squall and Captain Modell elects not to chase after it. Oh, dear. Midshipman Mason wouldn't have liked that. I'm pretty sure well, he I didn't. Think, I think Dr. Lighting, down in his surgery, would, would not have liked that. So so this was the part where they were uh, unhappy. Um, the, the, they, did, they did attempt to do a small chase. Yep. They, in fact, lowered the propeller for one of the first times, trying to get some speed up. So, as we talked about when we were talking about the Shenandoah uh, last week, it was a propeller uh, clipper. Yes. It was an extreme clipper that was also steam-powered. The propeller was lifted in and out of the water, and I think that was because if you left it in the water, it would slow you down if it wasn't spinning. Well, it looked very 
is. That is based, that is a 19th century version of the outboard motor. But the thing <laughs> yeah. is, these days you don't normally have out, you have outboard motors for 12 meter catamarans. You don't have outboard motors for 70 meter steamships. Yeah. So they got within a mile of this ship and then, uh, it hoisted the English flag. Yes. And then, uh, the squall came up so they, uh, the captain decided not to chase after her any further, which left quite a bit of grumbling in the crew. Oh, so, so, so the war was cancelled on account of rain. The war was... <laughs> yes, yes, and uh, and heavy weather. Oh. And also, I think, perhaps when that English flag went up, it gave them pause yet again that they really didn't want to make another mistake like they did before. Fortunately for the Shenandoah, a few days later, on the 5th of November, which is Melbourne Cup Day... Yes. So on the other side of uh, the earth, on uh, 1865, or this is 1864 still, isn't it? Yes. yes. So in 1864, uh, the winner of the Melbourne Cup, I've just, I've just also looked up here with the, uh, the wonders of the internet, <laughs> was a horse called Lantern. There you go. Yes. And uh, its odds were 15 to 1. That's not bad odds. And its prize money was £754 and is remembered for holding the slowest winning running time in Melbourne Cup history. So there you go. There you go, yes. yes I, I believe the horse I ran first day before yesterday came home with well over a million dollars. But there you go, that's, that's inflation for you. I think it's $6 million now, Rob. So it's, I'm it's clearly behind the time. It's, it's, uh, it's gone up quite a bit. So... While the Melbourne Cup is being run on the other side of the planet, the Shenandoah had its own uh, victory of sorts because they destroyed their... uh, They captured their first prize on the 5th of November. They destroyed it by burning it. It was the schooner, the Charter Oak. And isn't, it, that, sorry, isn't that the second prize, surely? That's the second prize, okay, yes. yes, yes, yes. Sorry, they've, they've, they've burned this one, though. This is yes. the first one they burned. Okay, yes. And the good thing for them there was uh, the ship carried a whole lot of interesting things in its cargo, which was going to be very helpful. The problematic thing for them is not only were their crew on board, there was also the captain's wife yes. and a small child. I think... I think um, yeah. Two females, in fact. I think there was the captain's wife and a female passenger with one child. There you go. So, but- so Waddell left it to, uh, to, to whittle as to whether they should burn the ship and therefore be burdened with having two females and a child on board or simply bond them and let them go. What do you think Whittle decided? He said burn. Burn, burn, baby burn. Burn, baby burn, and we can work out what we do with, uh, with them afterwards. Fortunately, if you remember when we were talking about the outfitting of the Shenandoah, it was sold uh, without, Un- yeah, unfurnished. unfurnished. I, I still think that the, the English totally saw them coming because I bet it didn't go to New Zealand as a troop ship unfurnished. <laughs> it might have been spartanly furnished, but I think they they yeah. ripped out all of the all of the furnishings before they sold it to the Confederates. And you know what? The Charter Oak could not have come with better cargo at this time. It was carrying a hundred tons of coal, which, which uh, they, they saw needed. They yes. sorely needed, and the rest was in sofas, yes. chairs, and bureaus and plows. But 
Well, I, I can't see the plows being of any great use. But um, uh, I'm sure they put the sofas, the bureaus and the chairs to magnificent use. And I can imagine, instead of having in the crew compartment, which of course is very empty at the moment, a whole lot of hammocks, yes. you've got a whole lot of... Uh, Jack Tars falling asleep on comfy on Shay Shay Lodges. Lodges, yes. Yes. However <laughs> you pronounce that. Yeah. So that was that was really good for them. The other thing that they were carrying was a cargo of two thousand pounds of canned tomatoes yes. and six hundred pounds of canned lobster. Oh look The problem with two thousand pounds of canned tomatoes is I can see that being Fantastic for the first few days or the first week or the first month. But I think after a long period of eating... And again, at this point, they had very little food. So basically, tin tomatoes and lobster would have been their next... There would have been lobster bisque a la tomato, I think, for the next, (laughs) yes, however many days. Uh, So the problem is, of course, that they'd brought on board uh, Captain Gilman, his wife... And his sister-in-law, Mrs. Gage, and her son, Frank, they come on board and they bought their personal effects because they were living on board this ship. That was, in fact, their home. Yes, it would be. So uh, Captain Waddell was assuming, okay, well, it's his home. He's probably got some what he describes here as money, plate, or specie on board. You know, actually, you could say his life savings. Yeah, yes, yes. And uh, when he was on board, Captain Waddell thought of taking his money from him and asked Whittle what should he do. Yes. And uh, Whittle told him that if I were in his place, I would not take it from him and reminded him that it might be all he had. Again, you see, this this is is being reported by Mr Whittle. I think think we are seeing... um, yeah, you know, it, it it wasn't Whittle's intention that this this wouldn't be published until two thousand and five or whatever. I think that's a fair bit of ass covering, to be frank. In, uh, in the so Waddell decided he was going to take uh, oh, Captain dear. Gilman's specie money or plate. Yes, but then, and this shows the uh, the gallantry. He said, in the presence of an officer, yes. he would give it to uh, Captain Gilman's wife. Yeah, that's a pretty classy move. Yes. So uh, they did. They they ordered uh, for um, the captain to give up all his money, which he did with great reluctance. And then, in the presence of past shipman Mason, gave it all to Mrs. Gilman. And it's described here that they were thunderstruck. So I, look, I have to say, why bother? You know, really, really, because. Uh, anyway, anyway, look, I'm, I'm sure Mrs. Gilman uh, accepted then, the money with thanks. Then, and don't forget that uh, Mrs. Gilman is one of the people that Mason then writes about uh, the captain having having eyes for. No, no, sorry, I didn't think that was Mason. I thought that was Cornelius Hunt. Oh, Cornelius Hunt. Sorry yeah, about that. Somebody yes. else's whose memoirs were definitely his memoirs were published. I think Mason's um, are available in some form, but I don't think they were published. But Cornelius Hunt certainly were published. So, so uh, as a as a as another noble gesture, they then gave over the captain gave over his cabin to Captain Gilman and his wife, and Whittle gave over his cabin to uh, Mrs. Mrs. Hunt. Is it Mrs. Hunt? And uh, and the door and the son. Yes, anyway, to, to, to the sister-in-law. Mrs. The Gage, sorry, Mrs. Gage, and yes. and her and her little son Frank. So then they had to go and find digs somewhere else. 
and I think that that was uh, that's that's another sign of these people trying to act in a in a gallant way. But it's it's also a sign that they have not thought out what they are going to do with their prisoners, and and this is going to be a considerable problem should they, to foreshadow ominously, get to the Arctic, where you know, and, very and, true, and take a whole lot of prisoners. Yes. So. As an example, and this also goes back to the uh, Declaration of Paris and the issue about privateers being very similar to uh, pirates in many ways, there are a couple of Portuguese lascars who accrue yes. of, this, of this ship that was being burned. And while the burning was going on, they had jumped in a rowboat and were trying to row away as fast as they could. And why were they doing that? Because they'd assumed they'd been captured by pirates. And I assume that Portuguese <laughs> Lascars know what happens when you get captured by pirates. Yes, yes. I was thinking of those, uh, yes, those, those uh, 19th century illustrations from Treasure Island. Yes. Uh, yes. So they were rowing away as fast as they could and eventually they were, uh, they were brought back. They were then confined all in the forecastle. Yes. These these crew and given the option to join the crew, immediately one one person joined as a coal shoveler, which would have been they, very they, comforting they, to the other coal shoveler they, they had. Were, they were short of coal shovelers. They would absolutely have needed a coal shoveler, so that was a very good pickup. And then eventually, uh, most of the crew decided that they would join the uh, the privateers. Now, now was this a ship? There was a ship um, where there was a a German engineer, but uh, who was. Um, shall we say, well, let's not beat around the bush, Jewish, who wanted to join, um, he wanted to crew, join the crew of the Shenandoah, and um, Captain Waddell uh, refused his offer. Was, was, was that, was that, that hasn't come up oh, in, okay. in Whittle, yes. but that's something that I think we need to check for our attributions and corrections yes. next week. Because it certainly did come up that, uh, <coughs> uh, yes, that uh, Waddell was desperate for crew, but, uh, you know, he... He yes, wasn't he that was desperate. Unfortunately, um, yes, rather anti-Semitic. Um, <coughs> yes. So at this point, they burn the ship. Yes. And it uh, it burns to the water, and they get to sail away with their comfortable chalonges. And their bureaus. And that, actually, that's probably why so many of the crew, of the officers wrote diaries, because they all had a bureau. A lovely they could, desk. They could sit down and write their bells, letters, and... Yes, uh, you know, while eating their, their, uh, their tomato soup. Eating their, 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 their lobster bisque, and, um, yes... Well, that was a, an incident-packed week. Um, look, I, I do hope they pick up another ship before next Tuesday, because otherwise, um, otherwise we might have to do more explorations into the, the you know, coincidences between um, the Shenandoah and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and we might, in fact, have had enough of them for this podcast. Um, but uh, this is the end, and um, the, the first, the first prize achieved. They are on their way, except <coughs> Waddell is Captain Waddell too cautious and timorous. How will that's, what, that's what some of the crew are saying. That's what some of the crew are saying. How will the ship cope with women on board? Because uh, <coughs> it was surmised at the time that women brought bad luck to a ship. So we'll have to see how they go. And what will be the next the next big adventure for the Shenandoah? Well, uh, to find that out, you're going to have to come back next week. This has been Shenandoah Down Under, or Confederate what, Pirate Save the Whales, by Robin Mob, Robin Love and Michael O'Brien. I'm Rob. I'm Mob. And we will see you again. See you next week. Next week.